And now, a native podcast with Matt and Zach. And welcome back to another Unnative podcast. I am one of the co-hosts, Zach, and with me as always is Matt Buddy. Matt Buddy, and I got to start it off that way as always. How are we doing today? Doing pretty fine, my man. Doing pretty fine. Good. Good to hear. Good to hear. I hear I hear the sun is out, out there in the Pacific Northwest. That's not something you get much of. Uh, <laughs> what, 300 days of rain or something like that up there. So I totally totally see that you got you see it right behind me there it's, it's <laughs> nice and bright so nice good day yes very yeah. much um yeah and and then i heard uh this week for us you have another fact um a fun fact coming from matt uh, i'm curious to hear what that fact might be matt yeah so um you know some some of our native people out there might live in some uh you know, social media isolated areas, but if they were following any native pages, they knew that Sunday the 25th was the victory day when Custer died. Yeah, Custer died. Got June, 25th. June 25th. June right? 25th. Yeah. They had the reenactment here uh, just this last weekend down at uh, Battle of Little Bighorn, you know, right like- down the road from Zach's house. You heard it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, and that's exactly uh, it, right? It's it it in a way that's uh, victory days, as they call it. Right, right. Well, and that was the uh, you know for people who don't know, it was the Lakota, the Cheyenne, and the Arapaho allies who defeated Custer and Crow Scouts. Um, right, and uh, it's known as the Battle of Greasy Grass, uh, Battle of Little Bighorn. Most people know it as. Um, and in your white in your in your white history books, it was taught to you as Custer's last stand. Yes, um, which is something that is interesting when you look at like the different topics, and that's kind of one of those topics. You know, one day I think we'll get into <laughs> on this podcast because, as you know, us at a Native Podcast here, we like to bring you uh, Native facts, Native news, Native whatever it may be. Heck, we may interview a Native uh, canoe artist one day. Who knows? Um, just bringing it to you, bringing you live the stories. Um, but today, today is another one heavy packed. That's how these first few episodes are definitely <laughs> kind of laying down the groundwork here. Um, and we're getting into tribal economic development. Yes. Um, and we're not just talking casinos. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, definitely, definitely a good one there. Um, and what we're going to be doing today is kind of just breaking down to you uh, what our kind of definition when we talk about tribal economies, tribal economics, um, some examples, we're going to talk about some issues, we're going to talk about some of the funding, um, as well as some of the definitions. And first things first, I like to I like to always start off these kind of subjects with the definition and NCAI, the National Congress of American Indians, which is a great organization, uh, definitely a good resource, uh, if you're looking up you know, tribal economics is a good start. And, and uh, they give a good definition here. And I think it's, it's, it's one worth noting. Uh, tribal economic development has provided the base on which tribal nations have built strong and growing communities and healthy economies. Relying on native traditions to guide community development, tribes have invested the resources from tribal economic development into their schools to support their youth and have built innovative elder care facilities. Tribal government and business leaders are focused on creating jobs and building workforce development initiatives for their tribal members. They have started banks and financial services, firms, first responder units, construction companies, radio and broadband facilities, and 8A businesses to support the essential operations of the U.S. government and its military forces. In spite of the historic underfunding of these federal programs, tribes have built and funded their own government and social service organization. Tribal communities continue to experience unemployment levels well above the national average. However, there have been advances and growth in tribally owned and operated businesses over the last several decades. NCAI continues to support initiatives that will spur economic development within tribal communities by advocating for native government, contracting, and loan guaranteed programs. NCAI also provides and coordinates the education of tribal leaders and members on the variety of financing options available to them. Access to capital and business education are critical to bringing tribes in into markets, not only at the local level and national levels, but also in the global economy. NCAI is committed to pressing multiple federal agencies to collect and compile a list of federal programs 
and financing options available to tribes and to coordinate meaningful consultations between federal government and tribes uh, to improve methods of educating and improving tribal participation in these programs. Um, so definitely more so heavy on uh, the government supported tribal economies um, and, and as, as they kind of hinted at uh, those local economies as well that the tribes have created thus for themselves, you know, and, and, and very various extremes uh, when you talk about tribal economies. Um, Cause it, again, there's 574 federally tribes plus all the state recognized tribes uh, that are out there that are um, doing various different things in the communities, in their local communities, in their regions, um, nationally and internationally, as you say, you know, because you talk about like the coal with the, the Crow tribe and how they ship it, you know, to Seattle. Well, that there's so much, you know, there's there's a reliant on that. There's there's different economies at play um, with different energies as well. You see some tribes getting in in in, in solar power. Um, you see other tribes getting into hemp um, and, and the cannabis industry. Um, you see other tribes getting into fishing and um, the salmon up in Alaska, the commercial fishing. Um, you see the oil pipeline up in Alaska uh, and how that affects tribes. You see the oil pipeline not wanting to go through North Dakota and those tribes. Because um, part of those economies, part of that pipeline going through places like that sometimes they get a little bit kickback, the tribe does, for going across tribal land. Well, and, and just, it's it's really funny you just mentioned the pipeline, because I just saw that the three affiliated tribes in North Dakota bought a pipeline. Right. They just, they ju that was just like a week ago or something. Right. And, and they... And yeah, it's crazy. And it's it's a smaller one, but it's it's I, like I, yeah. it's like to get it from here to there. Um there's pros and cons to everything, especially when it comes to oil, right? Pipelines might be safer in the fact of you just saw the fucking train in the, in Montana here uh in the Yellowstone River fall in and spill out a bunch of oil. Good, <laughs> our longest free-flowing river in the United States, guys, but it's it's interesting cuz uh well, you don't think of the damages those can do because of the, the the accidents that don't happen, but it's when the accidents do happen, it, the damages are severe, and, and what what does that ultimately cause? Well, um, it's pretty long lasting too after the spill. You know, right. due to the water, the wildlife, the depending on how big the spill is. You know, the people downstream, the people in you know getting getting water from the river. Um, but that's that's another topic. But there are tribal organizations around stuff like that that help those economies um i think another thing that gets confusing here is it's not necessarily the jobs on the reservation either um when you really look at the money coming into the economies it is a lot of that government money especially in your more rural remote tribes um but then you look at like your more urban or tribes where casinos uh, are a little more readily available, um, you know, like the Muckleshoot or some of the tribes in Arizona um, that have casinos and, you know, Sandia Casino, nice big one right there in Albuquerque, mm -hmm. uh, where they're able to generate a lot of wealth and revenue uh, from the local, you know, economies that they're tapped into and the tourists that come to their areas. You know, you have the tribes opening up casinos on the, on the Vegas Boulevard. So there's yeah. all sorts of just different ways of of making money you know I, I i like to look at like my personal examples of like the little shell tribe right like they have a fishing net company i mean it's small but you know it's, it's bringing some money in they have a rock quarry a travertine quarry which helps you know um they have a, a an enterprise called silver wolf which is just like a fulfillment type enterprise which helps and they fulfill con government contracts and you know there's a request for something they can do that and they they do a great job. And, and, and that's because here in a state like Montana, where there's open gaming. So in order to have a liquor license in Montana, you have to open up like six Kino machines or something like that in order just to have a liquor license right. uh, in the state of Montana. Um, so it's weird, but it's also a way when you really look at how the history books were written, how that also was designed to prevent native casinos uh, to really hurt tribes in the area um but how that has forced the tribes here in montana to do other different economies 
Um, I know like, for example, out in South Dakota there, you guys have um, the like, Tonka bars, which yeah. is that tribally owned? Uh, it is tribal member owned, if I'm not mistaken. I'd have to look more into that, but. Uh, but they, they still employ tribes and they're there in the local yeah. community. So in a way, they are a part of the tribal economy. They're, they're on know. the reserve. They're on the reservation. They're right there in Kyle, right on Pine Ridge in the middle there. So, I mean. Right. Yeah, so. and they're, they're hiring trial, tribal employees. They're, yeah. you know, they're hiring. They're working with the tribe most likely. Well, and now they're, now they're as, as some people who consume their products, like where did they go? Well they're building a larger warehouse. So right now they're relabeling, they're taking, you know, they're not shipping any products out at the moment, but they're really building something really big there. Well, and they're growing in that sense. And that's good to see. It's good to see some of those, those type of economies. And if you're not familiar to Tonka bars is bison meat, some of the oldest bison meat uh, packaged and it's good. I've had, I've had it. Oh, uh, don't, and don't buy Epic brand for yeah. the, Epic. Epic was the group that tried to claim that their bar was the original like bar of its kind when natives are like wait a second in the plains we had pemmican all tribes had pemmican right and which is basically what that bar is is a modern version of that essentially right it's yeah, yeah. processed in a sense of how, yeah. how we process things today not necessarily processed but it it gets no. gone through a modern process of packaging and flavoring and whatnot um it's it's pretty cool it's cool to see that it's cool to see uh different you know uh down in the navajo you're able to go to like upper antelope canyon i believe it is uh and with the navajo tour guides um you're able to go to um monument valley and support the navajo tribe there's tribal tourism the california you say has a really oh, good wow. source of a website for tribal tourism um yeah it's on the california page it's a it's a segment for that so right and i saw wisconsin has a really good one as well yeah um and i'm sure there's others out there montana has a decent one on their on their tourism page um and tribes i mean you just definitely link your link up with a tribe or link up with the native organizations in the area uh you can find out what's going on and it's kind of cool um, tourism tourism is interesting because depending on where the tribe is and the climate factors and some like the warmer weather states they tend to do a little better with tribal tourism to some extent because you know who's gonna who wants to go to northern minnesota to leech lake for tribal tourism <laughs> you know so some might be good fishing but yeah yeah i do get what you're saying That's why you think you think when you think tribal tourism you do think of like a arizona new mexico Right. Uh, Grand Canyon, right? The California well, they, tribes. They have the, and it's awesome that they do have it and we need to go support it. And that's, you know, when I, when you and I have been traveling most recently, I think we've, we've sought it out to go seek out some of these tribal opportunities, go visit, you know, the Pueblos down in New Mexico uh, and help them out in their ways. You know, when you're at, like you're saying like Arizona, they have the nice big resorts with the right. tent <laughs> water slides and it's cool. No, definitely go experience it. Support them. Uh, it's 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 well worth it. You know, you're not you're not helping the one percent in that sense. You're helping the native one percent. You know, because well, we're one U.S. population. Exactly right. And and I'm gonna use an example on this with the Warm Springs tribe here in Oregon. They had the Canida Resort, which people in Oregon, it, it it had water slides. They had like salmon bakes for people at the hotel. It's a high desert. There's wild horses around. It's really cool, but you know, it is kind of a remote area. And what happened was there was a non-native uh investor in the resort who was managing, he was managing it and, and basically kind of screwed over the tribe. And so people know in Oregon, well, Canada shut down, and now Warm Springs is hurting bad. Because well, you know. It is, it is located in Eastern Oregon. No one goes out to Eastern Oregon. You know, it's right. funny. People talk about Oregon. It's really the coast in the Willamette Valley. Yeah. And that's the time before Bend blew up. That was like, that, that was before that time. So they were somehow doing it then, you know. No, exactly. And people would yeah. go and you would see yeah. that. It was it was great. And, and, and 
those economies and those things do suffer because they're in a remote place. I, heck, I move into Wolf Point. I get it. <laughs> you know, when you, when you when you talk about what's going on out there and and people are like, oh, why don't you just get a job? The fact that there is no isn't any, you know, and and they come right. from the most remote places in the world. I right. say world because it's true. You know, you go to Rosebud, South Dakota, you go to Wolf Point, Montana, you're in some of the most remote places. And these people, like, they, they want to work, they want jobs, but they also don't want to leave their family. They don't want to, you know, uh, leave their community. They don't want to go to a big city. They've never experienced that before. I get it. I understand it. But you you got to look at how, how we can help, you know, when we are on these vacations, when we are on these trips, you know, like tourism, when you are buying your, your bison meat, make sure you're buying it from a tribe. You know, the Blackfeet just released a bunch more bison up by uh, East Glacier. So that's awesome. You know, and how many more people, you know, bison, such a healthier alternative anyway. (laughs) It's no, that was really, I, I shared that article earlier today and that was so great to see just like right there below the mountains in those where planes start it's like you know in some ways they they are trying to there's parts of traditional ways they're trying to go back to and they're like yeah these are things that will sustain us too in the future you know as they always have so well and like that's the thing uh with tribes too when you look at just the economic stuff is we we try you know like it's not like tribes haven't tried either, you know, they, they, they take these attempts, they try them, they do them. Um, it's, it takes the support, I think, from the outsiders. It takes the support from the other community, you know, the larger community of, of, of which your community is a part of, mm-hmm. you know, like you're saying, like, go and support where you can go get the healthier meat options where you can, but make sure you're doing it the right sustainable way, you know, right. but managing the bison, like, one bison are were, were a lot more wild than what they are in Yellowstone, I think. Oh yeah. But in a sense, they were also managed and farmed by the tribes. You're talking all the millions of people out on the tribal on the on the Great Plains with the bison. You know, they knew where the bison was at, they were following it, they were communicating with other tribes. It's all their trade networks right. uh, and whatnot. So it's like we know what we're doing in certain things. You look at like fire. And this is one economy to me because it's still run by the government, but you're paying you and you'll see a lot of hot shots, a lot of native hot shot uh, fire jumpers. Yeah. Um, when they are out in these communities, they're doing that. Like, I almost think like, why not just turn it over to some of the tribes to run some of these forests? Because in a sense, we've been doing it for thousands of years running these forests. Yeah. You know, the lightning's not new. <laughs> you know? No. You can come with the white man. Yeah, and, and that's they've really in the West Coast here, they've really took the the knowledge from those northern California tribes and really implemented it. And and it's been beneficial to some forests, and, you know, like, as a preventative, as preventative. Yeah. Look at Mescalero, New Mexico, look at Northern California, look at Montana, look at Alaska, look at the tribal people of those areas a lot of there's a lot of male young male and female you'll see both yeah. firefighters yeah and specifically wildland firefighters right ray he was a wildland firefighter his dad is still is i know a guy that does it uh for warm springs he lives in corvallis exactly <laughs> He's it's, good money. it's good job um it's good to see our, our our native people doing that but it's it's one of those things when you look at it like when you look at some of like, hey, how can we help these economies? Because some of them are struggling and some of them are in these rural areas. It's like, right. why don't we give them some land management opportunities? Because ultimately that's something we've been doing for thousands of years. Uh, and you do see it like with some of the national parks, how they're partnering with tribes and getting tribal speakers and tribal just uh, people involved, you know? And now we'd like to take the time to introduce you to our new segment, music on a native podcast here we will feature songs by native american artists and this week a heartbeat drum song by ulali Mm 
casinos they think oh all natives have casinos that's where you get your money well no a good a good chunk Ah. but that to me is because tribal gaming as what it is is kind of what helped really give a good kickstart for tribal economies you know that was the starting point uh and a lot of them we've mentioned before they started as a little bingo hall and like some of them blew up into some of the biggest resorts in the country. Exactly. Know? And some of the funnest resorts. Make yeah. sure the fun in there. I know people get scared of oh, coming yeah. to reservations. You got to make sure they're fun. And what's really nice is that they some tribes have really tied tourism into the casinos because they'll even design their hotels like like coastal Northwest style and Tulalip, right? With the with the fountain and the and right. then they serve their local foods even too. They right. give people the whole experience of like, hey, this is this is what it's like. This is our culture. Well, and you see the histories too sometimes in the because even in the casinos, you see like down in Sandia, we saw the pottery up in Cowlitz. They have you know some of the like wooden hats and the the paddles. Uh, when I was at Menominee, they had some of the uh, the white birch bark baskets that were oh. yeah oh. really really cool. Yeah. Um, and and to get into that, and it's it's cool to see kind of like that's where it starts. And uh, the National Indian Gaming Consortium, I believe that's Indian Gaming Commission, not Consortium Commission, uh, gives a good history here. And I'm gonna I'm gonna read that history on Indian gaming. Uh, tribal gaming, as we think of it today, dates back to the 1970s when a number of Indian tribes established bingo operations as a means of raising revenue to fund tribal government operations. At about the same time a number of state governments were also exploring the potential for increasing state revenues through state-sponsored gaming. By the mid-1980s, a number of states had authorized charitable gaming, and some states were sponsoring state-operated lotteries. Although the government-sponsored gaming was an issue of mutual interest, tribes and state governments soon found themselves at odds over tribal gaming. The debate centered on the issue whether tribal governments possessed the authority to conduct gaming independently of state regulation. 
Although many lower courts affirmed the tribal view in early cases, the matter was not finally resolved until 1987, when the U.S. Supreme Court confirmed the inherent authority of tribal governments to establish and regulate gaming operations independent of state regulation, provided that the state in question permits some form of gaming. California B V Cab Cabazon Band of Mission Indians, uh, 1987. Uh, Congress took up the issue of tribal gaming and conducted a series of hearings, ultimately culminating in the passage of the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act of 1988. Embodied in the act was a com compromise between the states and tribal entities. The states were offered a voice in determining the scope and extent of tribal gaming by required tribal state compacts for class three gaming but tribal regulatory authority over class two gaming was in was preserved in full. The act further provided for general regulatory oversight at the federal level and created the National Indian Gaming Commission as the primary responsible federal agency. Enacted in 1988 as public law 100-497, the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act established the jurisdictional framework that presently governs Indian gaming. The act established three classes of gaming with different regulatory schemes for each. Class one gaming is defined as traditional Indian gaming and social gaming for minimum prizes. Regulatory authority over class one gaming is vested in tribal governments. Class two gaming is defined as the game of chance, commonly known as bingo, which may include the use of electronic, computer, or other technolo technological aids. And if played in the same location as the bingo, pull tabs, punch boards, tip jars, instant bingo, and other games similar to bingo. Class 2 gaming also includes non-banked card games that are, that are games that are played exclusively against other players rather than the house or a player betting against the bank. Uh, the act specifically excludes slot machines or electronic fast smiles of any game uh, of chance from the definition of class 2 games. The tribe possesses the authority to conduct, license, and regulate Class II gaming, so as long as the state in which the tribe is located permits such gaming for any purpose and the tribal government adopts a gaming ordinance approved by the commission. Tribal governments are the primary regulator for Class II gaming. The definition of Class III gaming is extremely broad. It includes all forms of gaming that are neither Class I nor Class II. Games commonly played in casinos such as slot machines, blackjacks, craps, roulette, and clearly fall into the class three category, as well as electronic fastest miles of any game of chance. Before any tribe may lawfully conduct class three gaming, uh, the following conditions must be met. First, the particular form of class three gaming the tribe wants to conduct must be permitted in the state in which the tribe is located. Second, the tribe and the state must have negotiated a compact that has been approved by the Secretary of Interior. The Secretary must have approved regulatory procedures and a third. The tribe must have adopted a gaming ordinance that has been approved by the chair of the NIGC. Uh, the regulatory scheme for class three gaming is more complex than a casual reading of the statute may suggest. Only tribal gaming is regula regulated to such an extent. Non-tribal gaming is only regulated by state authorities. So that's like your casinos, like your, your large resort casinos are typically that class three. And right. I want to say that's part of the issue here in Montana uh, of why you don't see large casino and you could i mean why 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 can't uh, put a big one up there in flathead valley they want to put all those fucking million dollar homes up there well and then <laughs> you mentioned all the classes right and this is people ask why does this tribe have two casinos because they play the legal loopholes with the classes of casino well you're not only jumping through your own yeah <laughs> slash tribal what you can do right because you have your tribal government that's yeah. like no, don't build on that land, build on this land. Right. <laughs> you know, like you do, like you get that shit. And then you have the state. And like I said, you take a state like Montana, who is run by a bunch of assholes when it comes to how they work with tribal nations um, versus like Arizona, where it's like, there's a really good gaming commission within the state of Arizona itself. Right. You know, right. Washington has a decent one as well. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I know here in Oregon, the 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 Coos Lower Umpqua Sayusa tribe, their headquarters are in Coos Bay. Right. Their primary casino is Three Rivers Casino in Florence, Oregon. But they have a second, it's a very small one in Coos Bay that they just built. And it's like, how are they able to have two? Well, 
they've been playing the loopholes because that second casino is a certain class of gaming. Right. You might not have the table games, but they just have slots in there in a restaurant or something. Yeah. Well, here's one. Here's one too. I'm reading because Congress.gov also has a the S Section 555 Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, which oh, is right. what was passed in 1988. And right here, you're kind of going on an interesting kind of example. Right here is <laughs> excludes gaming from lands acquired by the Secretary for an Indian tribe after enactment of this act, unless such lands are within continuous to the boundaries of a reservation on the date enactment of this act. The tribe has no reservation on the date of enactment, or the secretary determines gaming establishment on newly acquired lands that would be best interest for the tribe, makes special provision for certain lands of the St. Croix Chippewa Indians of Wisconsin and certain interests of the Muscogee tribe of Indians of Florida. So it's like, Give it like two tribes that you know, <laughs> like you say, it's what loopholes can you find uh based on your state, based on your tribe, based on your right. sovereignty. Because like that I could see both of those places being, you know, like the Muskogee down in Florida, like that's kind of swampy in that area. Yeah. And I could see where it's like, no, that island over there, that's been our historical whatever. So right. yeah. Put a casino right there, right next to you know, or and we could yeah. open a can of worms with that. But uh, I know the Coquille tribe in Oregon, they have a called the Mill Casino, which is by North Bend Coos Bay, right? right on the wild, why on the waterfront? Okay, well, they pissed off a lot of tribes in Oregon because they were going to build a casino in Medford, Oregon, and oh. which is very strategic because what state is right south of Oregon that gets a lot of people? California. I five. Yeah. And the other tribes were like, no, that was not your territory down there. <laughs> and it never happened. It never happened. But that's exactly it. And and, and no. when you comes to some cases, when it comes to like that kind of stuff, they'll they'll argue tribal land. Yeah. Um but what what's to say with these some of these California tribes buying enterprises within like the las vegas Strip. vegas yeah that's you know, not traditional like, territory <laughs> no but but they're not like the nevada tribes aren't getting mad at them or this ain't happening right where like you're having own internal state tribes get mad at each exactly. other you know just like you even said where uh grand ronde when when cowlitz built their casino alanae up in, oh, in yeah. vancouver there yeah. Grand Ronde was mad because it's like that's taking part of our Portland traffic. Right. Um, so you have competing entities, you know. I'm sure down in Arizona, same thing, in New Mexico, same thing, right? You see the billboards there, you know. And that's where I guess it gets into some of these resorts being as bougie and nice as they are, having uh the ability to bring in you know larger talent and music venues and stuff like that. Cause that's another thing we don't even think of, like. Uh, take like the four seasons in Great Falls, Montana, where the Little Shell Tribe, our tribe is. And and uh, I've said for years, I've said we need an event center in Great Falls because it's a horse fucking arena. Four seasons is a horse arena. Like you need like some sort of just like multi-purpose arena that cities have of that size. Um, and if the tribe, if the Little Shell Tribe could do that, you know, I mean, it takes money, right? It doesn't happen overnight. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing happens overnight. It's not, a, it's not a light switch, right? right. But you know, you look at that, you look at that area and it's like, then you're able to bring, it's like, oh, based on how we can build this event center, we can design it. So we meet the 2023 security standards. So you can book A-list celebrities or a, you know, different, because there's venues, like people don't realize, like there's certain venues, certain performers won't go to based on right. how needed and security and this and that. And so, if an area needs a venue for events like that, that's a very good market to tap into. I would say exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and where where you know, and part of it too, and I think when you look at a lot of tribal economies and based on where they're at, right? Like it's what need can we fill, right? Right. You see, like the wind farms. Uh I'm trying to think what tribes have, you know, some in Washington that have wind farms and solar farms. Okay. You see uh, what you know, it's like what opportunities are presented. You see some of those, like I want to say Nevada and Utah tribes that have like they store the lithium or the yeah. nuclear storage. Yeah, nuclear waste. Yeah. It's good money for the tribe, but 
you know, it's 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 a con in in some ways. But yeah, there's there's environmental risk. There's a, yeah, <laughs> there's all sorts of things. But you're 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 also playing the cards that you're dealt. And with Indian country, we've been dealt a lot of shitty cards in our day, especially yeah. you know, especially since 1776. Oh, gee, I I wanted to mention. Uh, I I know we could talk a lot about casinos for a long great, time. Great, great. Been, you and I have been to quite a few all over now. Recently, so, yeah. Yeah, and uh, I wanted to mention you touched on, kind of started to hit on the mining natural resource yes. development, which people find it kind of. Uh, almost interesting that tribes are in natural resources when they were protecting it at one time but we're in a different time you know we're trying to tribes are trying to figure things out like anyone else and i think you know mining natural resources there in the in the northwest here and i don't want to talk of oregon too much but i've lived here most of my damn life right i i know about the tribal drama here unfortunately (laughs) but but the timber industry tribes uh they contract with logging companies to sustainably log their land. And, and this is coastal Oregon and Washington, even Northern California um, is a big part of their, you know, Grand Ron, that's still a big part of their economy too. Oh, so exactly. I wanted to mention that uh, as well as fisheries, even uh, some of them have got into, Hey, this tribe might have bought this commercial fishery out, you know? <laughs> so um no, like even like you take the muckle shoot in the cannabis industry and how right that is even leading like it not only is it leading the way for tribals entities getting into that realm because of the federal issue with cannabis that because tribes are federally recognized and how they get money from the feds how can you go successfully operating that and and the muckle shoot kind of been a good leaders you see other tribes slowly tapping into it uh, I was informed in the state of Montana, only the Crow have gone for like the state of Montana set aside seven licenses okay. for, for each tribe. Yeah. And the Crow are the only one who's actually like started exploring those options. Oh, interesting. Wow. Yeah. Because, well, because it, it, it risks funding in other ways. Oh. That's part of the issue. Um, where like you where like a muckle shoot has funding where like they might not take some funding from cert, for certain entities uh, from the government because that's the other thing like we're sovereign independent nations but we still get a lot of our funding from the government from the u.s government that is right so there's different entities where some like we don't get a we don't have money for a police force because we don't have a reservation so we don't have a police force to or a reservation to manage so we don't have that right but you know certain tribes do um, that's just an example um but i do want to i do want to call out some good things that have been happening that the u.s government has been doing uh when it comes to some of those programs and some of those uh entities um uh, within indian country and be, money being set aside you know that's that money you go for with your grants uh mm-hmm. some that comes to the tribe directly some that you know in, and indirectly basically uh in 2009 uh, the American Recovery Reinvestment Act. Uh, they invested $500 million uh, to improve American Indian and Alaska Native communities uh, for long-term economic development projects. Uh, these investments will make a real difference by providing funds to fix schools, upgrade housing, and build new roads and create new jobs, some which we may have seen already in the last 10 years uh, happen. Um, and that was that was 2009. But just recently, uh, the new under the new administration, the Biden Harris administration, uh, they've taken historic steps to support tribal communities in their recovery from the COVID nineteen pandemic. As we know, our communities were hit hard during the COVID nineteen pandemic. Uh, these were to advance e- equity and improve opportunity for all American Indians, Alaska Natives, and to help tribal nations overcome new and long standing challenges. The administration's work is rooted in the president's respect for the unique nation to nation relationship commitment to country's trust and the treaty responsibilities and desire to strengthen tribal sovereignty and advance tribal self-determination. The White House Tribal Nation Summit is an opportunity to celebrate the progress we have made in this new nation-to-nation era and maps out plans to improve outcomes for this generation of Native Americans for the seven generations to come. So that was part of that nation-to-nation summit that Obama started that was discontinued during the Trump administration brought back by the Biden administration. Right. Uh, those co- conversations with tribal leaders. Some say they work. Some say they don't. 
but when you talk specifically about economics, right, the Biden-Harris administration has made, made unprecedented financial investments in tribal nations so that Indian country can thrive. By prioritizing tribes in, in all of our economic recovery and development efforts, the administration is laying out the foundation for robust tribal economies, making healthcare more accessible, expanding early childhood education, modernizing infrastructure, and advancing climate resilience. In March 2021, the president signed the American Rescue Plan ARP Act, which made the largest single federal financial investment in Native communities in the history of the United States. The ARP is helping the country recover from a world-altering pandemic with $1.9 trillion in investments, including $32 billion devoted specifically to tribal communities and Native people. This oh, wow. funding included the $20 billion in emergency funding uh, to help tribal governments to rebuild economies devastated by the pandemic. And I think that was some of the money as well that when when you uh, applied for things, you know, you saw tribes being able to build things during the pandemic. Yes. Do things. Yeah. Um, uh, in November, President Biden signed the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act and is working to pass the Build Back Better plan. Together, these two economic packages contain billions of dollars to support Indian families with programs that will cut the costs of raising family and make it easier to afford health care and for old and for care for older Americans. Uh, the take unprecedented action against the climate crisis. The administration recognizes that the uh, chronic underfunding and infrastructure of the Indian country has harmed tribal communities, which is why the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act will make game-changing infrastructure investments spanning transportation, water, sanitation, energy, environmental restoration, telecommunications, and the climate resiliency. Totaling more than thir $13 billion in direct investments with the ability to access of hundreds of billions in more grants and other funding opportunities. Investments in the Build Back Better plan would be bring record funding for tribes in the areas of childcare and preschool programs. These transformative cradle board to college funds will make it easier for Native women and other family providers to remain in the workforce and increase educational opportunities and outcomes for children. Investing in tribal nations in the long term. In May, of 2022, President Biden presented his fiscal year 2022 discretionary budget, Congress to Congress, request to Congress, which include $28.8 billion for Indian programs, one of the largest budget requests ever for these programs. As part of our commitment to promoting the health equity for Native Americans, the administration requested $8.5 billion in discretionary funding for the IHS fiscal year 2022, an increase of $2.2 billion from fiscal year 2021. In addition to ensure stable and equitable funding stream for IHS for the first time ever, the budget includes a request for advanced appropriation of $9 billion for IHS in fiscal year 2023, so another increase, to support administrational and tribal priorities. Advancing funding is important to keep healthcare available for Native Americans in the event of uncertainties and delays in future appropriations process. Additionally, the Office of Management and Budget, OMB, and the Department of Health and Human Services, HHS, have begun an administration process along with tribal consultation on mandatory funding approaches for IHS. Did you know there's a new native apparel company? No, I did not. It's called Shop LS574, named after the 574 federal tribes and the Little Shell descendancy of its founders. Wow, that's really cool, man. It is. It is becoming a spot to order native apparel by and for natives working with native designers and teams to help best represent Indian country. That's awesome, dude. For sure. Now make sure to go pick up some uh, native podcast swag as well as other native gear while shopping at shopls574.com. Oh yeah. And do not forget to use code ANP10 to save on your next order. That's ANP10. Hey, Matt, did you know there's a tribally owned net company? No, I did not. Not only are they tribally owned, but Blue Ribbon Nets also creates totally sustainable products. With Blue Ribbon Nets, not only are you getting quality nets, but even eco-friendly ones as well. That's awesome, dude. It sure is indeed. Make sure to use code RUGARU10 on your next Blue Ribbon Net order to save. Again, the code is RUGARU10, R-U-G-A-R-U-1-0. I am definitely getting a Blue Ribbon Net now. Tune in every Tuesday to hear your favorite Native podcast. That's right. A Native podcast has new episodes every week. 
ranging from boarding schools to Indian child welfare. Not only that, but we have Indian country covered from Maine to California and Florida to Alaska, Hopi to Blackfeet and Choctaw to Clinkett, and all those Crees in between. And all you other natives and non-natives out there, we want to remind you to tune in this Tuesday to A Native Podcast. Is your res runner in need of new lights? Well, look no further than our friends at Oxteo, an industry leader in LED lights. Make sure to use code RUGARU on your next set of lights. That's R-U-G-A-R-U. Definitely good things when it looks at the money being put into Indian country. Uh, it's there for us, and 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 we need to take advantage of it, especially our grant writers, our Oh, and I've seen I've seen so many tribes posting jobs for grant writers like in the last six months. Oh, really? It's like, oh, my God, like this tribe's looking for a grant writer. But that makes sense with like, because you have the money or, or you're getting this money, but you're also like, how do you have someone who who's good at asking for money? Right. Like, how do you, how do you persuade people to give you money? <laughs> yeah. How do you, how do you show them? Right. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, but, but, but with that, I mean, and why is there a need, right? And part of that need is the issues uh, and the, the GAO, I don't know what that stands for, um, did a study and it was published August of 2022. It's called the tribal economic development action is needed to better understand the extent of federal support. Some of the fast facts are historically tribal communities have had higher rates of unemployment and poverty than other communities. The federal government administers multiple programs that can support economic development in these communities. We've identified 22 programs at seven agencies that provided economic development assistance, grants or loans for, to tribal governments and businesses. But these programs might be hard to identify or access, leaving tribal entities to miss out on vulnerable support. And that's what you're saying. You need the, the crucial people to get that. Right. And by the way, the GAO is the U.S. Government Accountability Office. Oh, good. good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's, let's hold them accountable, huh? Right. Uh, also, federal assistance totals for tribal entities are unknown because agencies don't analyze or report data for some programs. Um, right here. Federal efforts to support economic development among tribal entities show evidence of fragmentation and some overlap. Programs are fragmented across seven agencies. The U.S. Department of Agriculture, Commerce, Energy, Health and Human Services, Housing and Urban Development, and Interior, and the Small Business Administration. Tribal organizations, GAOs, spoke with, said many tribes have limited capacity to identify and access programs and may not be aware of the federal assistance available. The Secretary of Commerce is required by law to assist tribes and other eligible entities with identifying and taking advantage of business development opportunities. However, the department does not maintain information on federal economic development programs across agencies available to tribal entities. Without information on available programs, tribal entities may not access programs that can provide valuable benefits to tribal communities. GAO did not find any evidence of duplication. Um, GAO identified eight programs that are specific, specifically for tribal entities and provided $930 million in grants and loan guarantees in fiscal years 2017 through 2021. An additional 14 programs have wider range of eligible recipients, such as small business or local governments, as well as tribal entities. The amount of assistance provided to, by these 14 programs to tribal entities is unknown because two agencies, uh, SBA's Office of Capital Access and USDA's Farm Service Agency, do not analyze data to estimate obligations provided to tribal entities. Estimating and reporting the amount of obligations provided to tribal communities will allow federal agencies and decision makers, such as Congress, to better understand the reach of these programs and identify areas where tribal entities may need additional support. GAO identified several tax incentives that can contribute to economic development in tribal communities. However, data to evaluate whether tribal entities use these incentives are limited. In absence of more specific data, location data can be used to estimate the extent of which some tax incentives have reached tribal communities. For example, using location data for the new markets tax credit GAO estimated that from 2004 through 2019, tribal communities uh, defined as individuals and businesses on or near reservations, trust land, or Oklahoma tribal and Alaska native village statistical areas received 734 million and 891 million of investments. One to 1.3 to 1.6% of the total dollars invested into the credits. So they're oh. not, we're not even, yeah. 
why they did the study. Uh, historically, tribal communities have experienced higher rates of unemployment and poverty than non-tribal communities. Tribal economic development may help address these challenges and also provides benefit to tribes and surrounding areas. The federal government administers programs to facilitate this development. The Indian Country Indian Community Economic Enhancement Act of 2020 includes the provision that GAO conduct a study on Indian economic development. This report examines economic development to programs available to tribal entities and the extent of fragmentation, overlap, and duplication among these programs. Analyze available data on obligations to tribal entities for these programs and describe selected tax incentives available to tribes and related data. Among other objectives, GAO reviewed program information, analyzed obligations data, and interviewed tribal entities, agency officials, and the Native community community development financial institutions. Some of the recommendations. <clears throat> GAO made uh, five recommendations, and I only have three of them here, and they made them per uh, the Department of Commerce uh, and just different various things. Well, you can look at that. Right. But that's just some of the issues. And I, I they highlight some of the, the unemployment. Oh, yeah. Lack of jobs, the lack of knowing opportunities. Just because it's out there doesn't mean people are looking for it. You know, I think about that like, People post one picture to Instagram, like, how come I'm not famous yet? And it's like, well, no, you can't work on it. You know what I mean? Right. It takes time. It takes, exactly. it takes some time to build. And and I think in Indian country, you're seeing the time has been put in and now they're starting to build a bit. Right. Uh, I, I did want to mention, uh, I jotted down uh, an area we hadn't really talked much about uh, was farming and agriculture. Oh, yeah. And so... Where I'm like, obviously, a lot of the Plains groups have, uh, uh, you know, bison herds. Some of them, it, it's a variety. Do they do they sell it, you know, for profit? Do they, you know, is it for the community? It's, it depends. Uh, I do want to highlight there's a tribe in California, uh, the Yocho Dehi Wintu tribe. Okay. They are fairly close to Napa Valley kind of area in between there and Sacramento. But they tapped into the wine industry as well as the olive oil industry. Oh, wow. And I think, you know, that the, the, like Gila River, Arizona has some tribes or, or has some tribal owned farms down there. And I think some tribes, you know, have have land for this. And, and, and it's I think I think there's some that, you know, depending on their climate and water, they're seeing opportunity with that. So um it's interesting like to see you know it is you no know, it really is it's good to see the different the differences of each tribe as well right um i kind of have i think one i'm reading my articles here i always like to print out articles for you guys uh to talk about different things and i think uh this one here it's a, it's a recent one it comes from Native american heritage month 2022 november 30th um and it i want to say who's written by maybe no, it doesn't say who it's written about. It's the financial security program. Finance, the role of data in building vibrant tribal economies. <clears throat> well, it's nice to believe that love, that love makes the world go round. It's actually data. Data is the North Star by which government and private sector lead make decisions. The guiding force behind who gets access to resources critically cri resources critical to healthy, thriving communities. Data is the linguina franca of investors and police, policymakers. This is why today's lack of publicly available businesses and economic data about tribal communities is concerning, but not surprising. The historical misuse of tribal data in other contexts, like the study of tribal health issues, has generated mistrust about sharing tribal data more broadly. When members of the Havasupai tribe asked an Arizona State University professor to collect blood samples from tribal members to look at it for a genetic link to diabetes, an attempt by the tribe to learn why rates of diabetes were increasing among tribal members, Research didn't identify a genetic link. However, they continued using blood samples to research and publish articles on incest, alcoholism, and other subjects that violated informed consent, according to the American Medical Association Journal of Ethics. Today, as tribes seek to strengthen their economies, this lack of business and economic data stands out. With good data sets, we're unable to articulate fully the needs of our tribal communities address the barriers to meet those needs and evaluate the results of economic development activities in methodological longitudinal fashion, says Chief Lynn Malaraba, U.S. Treasurer of the Lifetime Chief of the, and the, and the Lifetime Chief of the Mohegan Tribe. For example, in 2020, 
Federal officials were unable to determine the local debt of tribally owned enterprises. This greatly complicated the officials' efforts to ensure that lending facilities they created to support businesses grappling the economic fallout of the COVID-19 pandemic would be large enough to accommodate tribal enterprises, which suffered a dramatic loss during the pandemic. Policy solutions are one area where a dearth of economic data has an impact. Businesses' opportunities are another. Absent data is difficult to make the business case for investment into tribal communities. A point emphasized in the recent Wells Fargo report, Indian countries once in a seven generation opportunity. Tribal communities are economically invisible. If we can develop tribal businesses and economic data reporting that accommodates tribal data sovereignty considerations, this solution could attract more investment businesses that focuses on Indian country, says Dawson, many, her, Dawson, her many horses head of Native American banking for Wells Fargo and enrolled member of Rosebud Sioux Tribe. Uh, the Center for Indian Country Development, CICD, based, in, based at the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis, has identified accurate and timely Indian country data as an urgent priority and is one of the growing number of stakeholders working to address the data gaps. Strong partnerships and data collections that advance Indian country priorities are central to supporting tribal data sovereignty, says Casey Bozar, director of CICD and member of the Confederate Salish Kootenai tribes. CICD has identified inadequate sample sizes, mismatched geographies, and Indian countries' unique characteristics as challenges to supplying the necessary data. CICD has also worked with partners to identify principles for research and data use. Intended to honor tribal data so sovereignty and governance in data collection and research, critical issues that must be the highest priority for, work, for any work involving tribal data. Increasingly, there, there is movement towards data sovereignty, recognizing that if data are to be collected, that evaluation of the data needs to occur through an indigenous lens, and there should be a defined benefit to the tribal people, says Chief Malabra. She cites that the Global Indigenous Data Alliance and the United States Indigenous Data Sovereignty Network is part of the growing movement to identify policy frameworks for collecting data and conducting research in indigenous communities. There are ways to increase the availability of tribal businesses and economic data while preserving tribal privacy and sovereignty. As evidenced by the work of the National Indian Gaming Commission, the regulatory for the Native American gaming, each year NIGC collects revenue data for tribally owned casinos in the U.S. The commission then aggregates and publishes the data in an annual revenue report in a way that both respects tribal confidentiality while providing stakeholders with information that is not only important to understanding the industry in real time, but also makes clear the very real and substantial economic power of tribal governments and entities, creating similar reports for other industries in which tribes would act are active would showcase tribal economic strength and could also help catalyze opportunities for tribal economic growth. Say that two times fast. It's <laughs> a good one. Um, it is. You know, and it, it, it's good to talk about these issues because you know, people want to understand it and know it and, and understand the complexities. But again, it's Indian country. There's, you know, there's not one size fits all. You know? Exactly. Exactly. It's, it's interesting because it, there's so many factors at play here, you know, with why certain tribes are developing maybe more of an economy than others. You know, I mean, there's so many things. Right. No, definitely. There's so many things. And I mean, and, and I guess here we got a little bit of time left. Um, I want to dive into just the opening of this story uh, was published this last fall. Uh, it's revitalizing a tribal economy through cultural connection. Uh, how the Rosebud Sioux Tribe is centering Lakota values in its economic development strategies. September 13th, 2022. Clay Colombe remembers the steady stream of visitors coming to the Rosebud Sioux Reservation through his childhood. Mission service and government groups would also drive through South Dakota's seemingly endless prairie to arrive onto the reservation and offer their ideas for how to make life better for the Native nation. Then they would get back on the road. They would say, you should do it this way, try this, but that didn't get us anywhere, Columbus said. They never asked our ideas for addressing the problems here. Now, Colombe, a tribal citizen, is the chief executive offer of SICANGU, S-I-C-A-N-G-U Co., the tribe's economic development arm. Uh, oh, that one got cut off in the printer. Uh, that means decision-making priorities, Lakota values, including family, kinship, and the connection to the world with everything in it. 
With the help of an ongoing planning partnership with the U.S. Economic Development Administration, Singanku Ho has taken steps to leverage the reservation's wealth of resources in both people and land and to center Lakota culture and values in all aspects of economic development. Singanku's Co. I think it's Sikongu. Sikongu Co. Because it's a company. Oh, oh, wow. Sikongu <laughs> Co. Work, uh, represents a locally driven solution. The guiding principles of EDA's partnership with communities across the country that acknowledges that every place is challenges and opportunities are different. By investing in local capacity and maintaining a long-term partnership with the tribe, EDA is helping ensure that economic development efforts on the reservation are driven by the tribe's core values and goals. Our culture is in everything we do, and we need to make sure we're living up to the values of our people and our globally uh, said. That's how we can recreate our own economy. Um, yeah, I, I really think that that model is a good one because I think I think tribes should be looking like they should be going off their like values when they make these kinds of decisions. Like, you know, if they're if they're going for something that's going you to know, cause problems in the community, right? Like, so that's the 50-50 argument with the casinos sometimes. It's like, well, does that add to gambling problems and other things? You know, I mean, it can. I mean, right. Well, in reading here more throughout the article, like it talks about the issues. It talks about how how they have helped in different ways. Where where they can do, uh, they saw issues with the youth. So they in 2020 they actually opened up the Wakanyanja, W A K A N E Y E J A Tokiachi T O T O K Y A C H I Lakota Immersion School. Oh, nice. I'm bad with language, guys. I, <laughs> I can um, tell. Uh, to teach children locate the Lakota language and value. And it serves about 36 students currently. So that's another one right there. But then that inspires those kids, right? They, they One of those kids one day realizes, I went to this school. Here's here's the opportunities. You know, there's so many good happening of it. And it's kind of cool that they're, they're using that to, like, how can we have our core beliefs and anchor our roots and anchor ourselves in those core beliefs and grow that right I, our tribe and with think, economics oh it's yeah and i think uh th this was kind of the last area i i had written down i wanted to mention briefly was that like some tribes have tapped into hunting fishing right and and the white mountain apache are the poster tribe for trophy elk hunts and you would know that yeah <laughs> yeah and uh it, I, I mean they they really and, and the thing is with that one it's like the tribes managing those elk herds right and charging these rich texas oil guys that come hunt a trophy bull elk i mean and you're not disturbing the land you're managing it. you're you're you know and, and they're in that area produces trophy elk every year so and you're no different than the than the the non-native you know, hunting operation down the road, you know, and then those yeah. outfitter, that's the name outfitter. The outfitters. Yeah. yeah. You know, uh, it's good. I mean, you go hunt a bison on some reservations as well. Yeah. yeah. Pine Ridge is one of those. Um, they charge a lot more for non-tribal members. I can tell you, <laughs> but it's going to the tribe. It's going to the herd. It's going to good, good cause. So if you really want to go hunt a bison, you know, uh, really go figure, find a tribe that, you know, yeah. they help them out. The crow, crow right there in your backyard from Billings is, is known for that as well. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but but no hunting stories today. Uh <laughs> we're we're kind of running towards the end of the episode. And I just I, as always, I gotta ask Matt Buddy, any any last words? Yeah, no, I think that this is an area that is really expanding to new areas. And you touched on it with mentioning the cannabis industry. That's that's kind of the booming one, I would say right now. Um, some tribes are dipping their toes in, so to speak. I think in uh, like outdoor recreation, I think is an area that is a little bit untapped. And we've seen, you know, the Blackfeet does like their own tours of Glacier. They, you know, tribal, tribally guided hikes. You know how many people would pay for that? 
uh or just a, just you get you get your 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 res ernie or whoever that may be <laughs> to, get, to drive the duck boat you know what i mean you go yeah. to seattle and you see those boats driving exactly. on the road and they drive out to the ocean do that in many glacier yeah. right no i noticed uh you mentioned uh havasupai tribe in an article their right. their blue aqua falls in the bottom of the canyon you know they charge for that and you have to reserve and they're they open out. now they opened they're closed for COVID. Yeah. They're yeah. This year. Uh, so I guess my last word, you know, th there's these new areas and, and I'm really like, I'm really curious to see what tribes do with some of these untapped areas they have potential to. Oh, know, that's, that's great. And yeah. that's really great to see. Um, definitely, as you say, like tourism is definitely one of those that is growing as well um, with how these tribes are realizing like, hey, we don't need to, you know, rape our land. We can sell the ability to come to our land. Right. Um, you know, and, and there, it's interesting because you take like the Crow and Cheyenne here in Montana, you know, with how the beliefs of coal, you know, both tribes are right. connected to beliefs of coal. You know, that's why the Northern Cheyenne don't mine their their land, yeah. uh, which is fine. And, and, and over time, we're realizing that that tourism is like, hey, you know, come see this cool canyon. Come walk out on this glass staircase out on the Grand Canyon, you know, because you're able to do that in these tribes. I would love to see. And I think Trees of Mystery is owned by the Yurok tribe. I'm not 100% sure, but right. there, there's an affiliation somehow. <laughs> um, but like, how, how cool would that be if the Yurok tribe in the Redwoods had a bunch of like those walkways for people to go on, oh, and charge yeah. them, you know? Exactly. The things these tribes can get into and do um, as, as that tourism bubble, you know, it grew during the pandemic. We saw that tourism bubble um, and it's just kind of, it'll pop, but where does it pop at? You know, where the ring doesn't go down. Like, right. <laughs> oh yeah, um, but definitely going to check more of that out this summer. Hit up tribes where we can, support the economies where we can. But until next time, bye bye. I know, I know ballers, I know chiefs, I know riders from the east, I know educated natives down to pick it in the streets, middle fingers to police. Fuck you, we come in peace. I know red skin hippies that be giving me the creeps. I know beauty, I know beast, I know savages and freaks, and I know a couple cousins even. No, 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 ain't a leak, bougie native, yes indeed Art exhibit to the club, and we roll it 20D Copper on my neck, gold on my ring Feather on my hat, skin stitch chin Hundred warriors on my back, daily drumming when I sing Man, there ain't no way around it I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a. a Native Podcast is produced by g, g Advertising and Quartz Lake Productions